Hey, good morning, Liz. It's really good to see you. How are you? I'm well in the future. Good afternoon to you, Peter. Oh, yeah, that's right. You are in the future. <laughs> yes. It's what? It's 1 p.m. We're past it's 1 p.m. That's okay. right. Our bi coastal yeah. podcast. Yes, that is correct. How could I forget? <laughs> um, well, let's see. I think there's some stuff to unpack from our last conversation. I know that I sort of um, dumped some stuff on us at the very end um, that I think would be good just to uh, debrief or process a little further. And then we're into a new month and we're, mm -hmm. we have a new book, which is very mm -hmm. different from the book that we read last, uh, last month. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I know you have some stuff to say about that. <laughs> um, and then I think uh, maybe also helpful in the midst of these various uh, texts and conversations is we have these these themes that serve as anchors for our, our very uh, rich and varied conversations. And so our theme for this month is the long journey. Mm -hmm. And we're being invited to consider what it means um, to think about spirituality as a long journey with mm -hmm. a beginning, middle, and end. And most of the work that we're doing, we're experiencing is, of course, in that messy middle Mm -hmm. But just being able to place ourselves on a longer trajectory can be a really helpful exercise and give us some good perspective. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of where we're at. Uh, yeah. Anything? I mean, I could just start by being like, I'm curious what you wanted to, like what it was about the last conversation that you wanted to revisit. Yeah. I think afterwards I felt uh, like, oh, it would have been, really nice to be able to add some footnotes and some um, <laughs> and add some hemming and hawing to mm -hmm. the statement that I think I'm still an evangelical because mm -hmm. um, so I think some qualifying statements that I would like to offer and then um, would love to hear your thoughts on any of it. But one is I think it's a really complicated thing to identify with um, something as complicated um, as evangelicalism. So mm. I want to just clarify, I think, some of the, just so that there's not any misunderstanding or um, there's different implications that perhaps um, someone can draw. And so I think at the, very, at the very least to say that there are ways in which evangelicalism has um, developed in the course of American history what evangelicalism is today that I want to very forcefully repudiate and say um, there's something there's something deeply problematic about what evangelicalism represents in on the American landscape today. Hmm. Um, and then also maybe to um, provide a little bit more context, because I think what I was trying to get at is this um, realization I'm coming to that many of my Christian beliefs uh, that I hold today align with what someone might call classical evangelicalism, um, which arose in the 18th century. And there's a, a long history and, and lots that have, have been written about uh, early evangelicalism. But there's a classical version of evangelicalism that, um, you know, has a high view of scripture, that uh, prioritizes or that emphasizes the work of Jesus and the cross, um, where the um, the reality of the resurrection is really important. And so those are the kinds of things that I would say I still feel very much drawn to and feel rooted in. 
But I, I also want to recognize that there's a, at the heart of classical evangelicalism is also a th- profound theological error. Something that someone like um, Willie Jennings has called supersessionism. And that's basically the idea that um, uh, Christians began to think, those particular Christians in that very particular time and place began to think that they were the only ones who believed, who had a pure or correct view of Christianity, right? And so, because if you Mm -hmm. think about it, um, lots of other Christians believe in the Bible, right? Mm -hmm. Lots of Christians believe in the resurrection, the bodily resurrection. Lots of people believe in the atoning work of Jesus on the cross. Um, They may have differences around how that comes about, the mechanics of it. Uh, but those are not beliefs that, that um, I think evangelicals can claim as their own, as their unique take on Christianity. And so I think that's the part that we have to recognize and say there's a uh, at the very beginning of evangelicalism, there's a profound theological error and hubris. Mm-hmm. And then which brings us to today, what I, I think what's important for me to recognize about the problematic manifestations of evangelical faith in, in the American um, culture, cultural landscape today is that it's not an aberration. So lots of evangelicals will say things along the lines of, I'm an evangelical, or I thought I was, but I want nothing to do with what evangelicals today are espousing and how they're, uh, how they're showing up in the world. Mm-hmm. And it has nothing to do with the historical evangelical faith that, um, that I hold. And I think there's a problem there because there is a a direct or indirect. There's a long history, um, a couple of centuries, a couple of centuries of history, but there is a causal link. And I think the causal link is that hubris that was uh, at the heart of early evangelicalism. Um, and so, uh, for me, it's really important to hold all of that and say. Uh, as problematic as evangelicalism is today, uh, there are historical roots. There are reasons why um, it has developed in the ways that it has. There are reasons why it is so easy for um, evangelical Christians to espouse racist and homophobic um, uh, statements about mm-hmm. the people that are their neighbors that they are supposed to love. And so I think recognizing that is really important. And so um, I guess part of what I'm grappling with is how to hold all of that mm-hmm. without, um, without denying my own uh, history and my own um, journey through, through that. And maybe the last thing I'll say is it's kind of like when you go to the home of a friend who is from a different culture, and it's very clear that in their cooking, they use uh, different spices mm-hmm. than the ones that you're used to. And there's a distinctive smell. Mm-hmm. I want to say that evangelicals have a distinctive smell. So mm-hmm. those beliefs mm-hmm. that are shared classically and historically, there's a distinctive smell that evangelicals, um, I think, exhibit when it comes to those beliefs. And and I, I, I want to be able to sort of, I want to be able to uh own and um, and sit in the complex reality of what it means that I have that my theological imagination has been shaped uh, by all of that. And I think where mm-hmm. it becomes rancid, that smell becomes rancid is when um, you have the full sort of blossoming of those supersessionist seeds that were 
um, really shaped by a kind of hubris that said we have the only version of truth. And so, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, it's very complicated, but I think it's important. It felt important for me just to be able to um, to sort of address the various layers of all of that as I think about what it means that I come out of this tradition um, that is that we call in various ways um, evangelical Christianity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let me see if I've gotten you correctly. It sounds like you're saying that you recognize that like American evangelicalism as we know it today is hugely problematic in a lot of ways. Like what it's come to represent is very problematic. But at the end of the day, you still hold some of the like foundational principles of evangelicalism, like the atoning work of Jesus, the resurrection, um, and the but the pillar, so to speak, that you have an issue with is the supersessionism piece. Did I get that right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And I think there's ways in which even those core doctrines are held with a supersessionist spirit. And I and mm. I just want to recognize these are core beliefs to me. Um, but I need they need to be held with humility. And so mm. it, having a non-supersessionist understanding of the atoning work of Christ means, I don't know what that means. And I think this is sort of where the place where I, I am now is, okay, so I have this belief about how, um, how people experience spiritual redemption, right? Um, it's the atoning work of Christ on the cross. Um, but what does it mean to hold that view in a non-supersessionist way? I think there are, um, there are ways to move forward on that, but I think that we're at, still at a place, I'm at a place where it's unclear what that means, what the implications mm. are. Okay. And it's just so I'm totally clear, in, in this case, supersessionism is like this idea that like evangelicals are the only people who, who, who get it right. Is that what? Yeah, that's or the that they kind of override or, or supersede everyone who's come before it, so they have mm-hmm. the purest version gotcha. of uh, gotcha. Christian belief. Okay. Um, a follow-up question I have, which you're more than welcome to cut if you don't find it relevant to the rest of our conversation. You said that there are other Christian traditions that also hold the pillars that you have, which is like the authority of Scripture and the atoning work of Jesus and the resurrection, but they don't hold the supersessionist piece. So why not just identify with one of those other ones given that supersessionism is the piece that you take issue with? You know what I'm saying? Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know that there's um, a version of American Christianity that is not tainted with supersessionism. Mm. So that's, I I think that would be an interesting question to explore. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. Like are there churches? So I live in San Francisco and I happen to work at a church. I guess I don't have this freedom, but let's just say I could go to any church (laughs) this coming Sunday. Is there a church that would be less supersessionist in their theology? Um, I, that's a really good question. I don't know. I don't know because you know one of the questions, one of the um, issues that came up last month when I read that Sylvester Johnson uh, quote from an interview. Sylvester Johnson is a scholar of, of uh, Black religion, including uh, African American Christianity, and he would mm-hmm. say that even Black Christianity is wrapped up in a project of imperialism. Uh, mm. Because of its long, tangled, and complicated history in um, in America, sure, and so sure, sure. right, Interesting. so Interesting. that's where it becomes really complicated. Like, where can I go? And yeah. I, I would, lots of people would say, "Well, go to the Episcopal Church." Mm-hmm. And my response to that is, um, "It's uh, well, yeah, it's complicated because 
I don't think it's um, by going to the Episcopal Church, I'm going to find myself in a place that is free of that supersessionist mm, error. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's deep in me. So I, I can repudiate it with my mouth, mm-hmm. but in my heart of hearts, how, how, um, yeah, how influential, informative is it still today? Yeah. Oh, that's super interesting because I feel like what you're saying is like, I feel like you're rejecting a part of evangelicalism that like a lot of us, a lot of people listening also want to reject. But the argument that like really wherever, like all the alternatives are also kind of tainted with this too, it's like, Mm -hmm. is super interesting to think about because I'm sure that like the Episcopalians and the PCUSA and the ELCA do not think of themselves as super secessionist. Um, But it is, that's really interesting to think about like the ways in which that kind of thinking may subconsciously permeate the theology or you know what i mean the ecclesiology yeah. how 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 anything operates there mm-hmm. and i think different ones of us have different options available to us right and mm-hmm. so just like we mm-hmm. talked about last week or last time um because you come to this christian tradition late in your life it's not a deeply embedded part of your past right i think it's 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 a different it's a different process for someone like you to throw it off. And I yes. recognize and honor your ability to do that. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just uh, a little bit more complicated for me because it's so deeply um, part of who I am that I think mm-hmm. it's, it's, it, would be, it would be arrogant of me to think that I could somehow stand above, rise above my, mm-hmm. my past in that way. I want yeah. to, and I don't want to say it's a fool's errand, but... Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's not as easy or simple as um, I would like it to be. Yeah, that's really interesting. I really appreciate you saying that. I, um, you know, it's funny to say that like coming to Christianity as 15 is like late in life. And I giggle about that now that I'm 39. But like the reality is that by the time you're 15, like the garage door has closed in a lot of ways to steal a, a line from a comedian I like. So like, you know, um, my most formative experiences, I mean, high school and college are formative, but my most formative experiences are not in church, are not with certain theologies being like repeated at home and at, and you know, at church and whatever. And so um, I agree with you. It is different for me because it's something, yeah. it's not the water that I was raised in. Mm-hmm. Um, the soil I was raised in, I don't know. I'm mixing metaphors here, but um and it's interesting too because I think I agree with you that it's not as easy to shed the things that you grew up with um, as you might think it is, right? And I think of this as somebody, you know, I've been Asian my whole life um, and I cannot disentangle myself from those some of those cultural things even if I wanted to. And sometimes I see the people who try and their life in a way becomes a reaction to those things, which, you know, they're, they're, they're pulling in the opposite direction, but ultimately their behavior is still driven by the thing, you know, and I see the same with evangelicals sometimes who grew up in evangelicalism and want nothing to do with it now, but now their lives are lived in a way that's like a little bit reactive towards evangelicalism, which feels like ultimately evangelicalism is still calling the shots, even if you're acting in opposition to it. Right. And I think it takes a lot of like self-reflection and like also some therapy to like really um, work through that. If this is something that you have been like bottle fed and you are now looking to like, um, like extricate from your life. Yeah, yeah, that's really well put. How do you extricate yourself from something that you have been bottle fed from the earliest, mm-hmm. most formative stages of your life? Yeah, 
Yeah, because it's it's not as easy as just taking it off when it's been bottle fed. It's like it is part of you. It's part of your DNA at this point. And so, um, um, and I, but I think part of what I'm overreacting against or want to guard against is this tendency that many evangelicals ha- seem to have, which is to say, hey, if I just go back to an earlier version of my faith, I will be able to recover a more pristine version. And so mm. the, the ways that it has um, taken on characteristics or traits of the culture and been poisoned by it or been um, influenced by it in, in unhealthy ways, if you go back far enough, you can get to a place where it wasn't, um, it wasn't unduly influenced by its cultural uh, surroundings. Mm-hmm. And the fact of the matter is it was from the very beginning. Yeah, it was an imperialistic and culturally chauvinistic context in which evangelicalism arose. Yeah. Yeah. And if you if you want to like go all the way back and be like, I'm going to get I'm just going to become Episcopalian, which is what like everyone I went to seminary with who stayed Christian is now an Episcopalian. It's like, well, that is also a reaction to I mean, you want to trace the roots back to Episcopalian. You got to go all the way to Henry the Eighth. And mm-hmm. <laughs> and yes. that is also born of a roots specific there too. problematic roots. Exactly. And you go that and like you keep going and then you have like the Catholic Church and it's like empire of conquest problematic roots like you you keep going back and there's no point at which the roots are not problematic that's so well put exactly i mean exactly what you're saying is that that long history is inescapable for people Mm -hmm. who have grown up in this tradition Mm -hmm. so like let's talk about the episcopal church well we probably shouldn't but okay against my better judgment (laughs) let's talk about the episcopal church we'll see how it goes (laughs) which is the church of england Yes. And so what I say to my Episcopal friends that I love and admire in many ways is you guys are the original Church of Empire, at least in Mm -hmm. the North American context. So let's not forget about that longer history there, too. Yeah. And also your origins are because like a a narcissistic king wanted a son. That's where you came from. Not great. Also not great. (laughs) Right. Yeah, let's talk about that, right? Let's talk about that messy history. Yeah. 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 That's helpful. Well, thank you for indulging me in this because I think it's, uh, yeah, it just feels like it is the question of the day for me and for people yeah. like me who grew up mm. uh, and grew up out of this and this uh, really messy uh, spiritual tradition and we're trying yeah. to untangle ourselves from it. Yeah, and I really appreciate your thoughtfulness in like wanting to define, put put some definitions around it because you're right. Like you know, announcing that you think you're still evangelical is gonna land all different ways to all different kinds of people. So like laying out some clear definitions, I think, is worthwhile. And especially, I think, as a lot of people wrestle with if if this is an identity that they still hold slash want. Yeah. So switching maybe switching gears here a little bit now, as we think about the content for this month in the Faith and Justice Network. Um, so maybe we can talk about both the shift and then what we are moving towards, because we are not reading the entire book, but we are taking a few chapters out of Mark Knoll's new book, America's book, The Rise and Decline of a Bible Civilization. And um, one of the things that we're trying to do there is to have a more uh, robust understanding of how the Bible has impacted American culture and also how American culture has impacted um, 
people's reading of the Bible, the church's、mm. use of the Bible. And so maybe a, a question I wanted to ask you as a way to open this part of the conversation、um, is how have you experienced the Bible as a,、um, as a blessing, but also as a burden in your life,、um, mm. both personally, but maybe also more broadly in terms of what you observe in the world out there? <sighs> This is such a good question because I feel like how I have experienced the Bible in these ways has changed so dramatically from the beginning of my journey to now. I feel like at the beginning of my journey, like having the Bible was like, it felt like the book of answers to the questions that I had about spirituality that I had no language for.、Um, and that felt Wonderful and joyful. But as I have gotten older, I have realized that the Bible actually does not have answers to all of the questions.、Um, and actually, in many places, it contradicts itself.、Uh, sometimes, within the same, on the same page, it contradicts itself. The first two stories of the first two chapters of the Bible are two completely different creation accounts.、Um, and so,、um, you know, at, at, That particular, when I was 15, I needed a book that I thought gave me answers. And the older that I get, and the more that I realize that, like, very little in life is black and white and things are more shades of gray, like, I appreciate、um, that, like, the understanding that the Bible is a collection of stories. It's not a textbook, but it is a collection of stories written across time, across place, full of different genres. Um, and, you know, in any kind of, there's wisdom to be found in it.、Um, it. It might not be literal. It's probably not literal. Like, you know, a lot of it is not literal,、um, but they're in the stories.、Um, there is wisdom. And I appreciate a book that hold, can hold all of that. Even though if you had told me that when I was 15, I would have been devastated. <laughs> my whole world, my whole new platform would have been shaken, right? But、um, the older I get, I appreciate this. I remember when I was in college,、um, I was in a great books class at the University of Michigan. And my TA for this class, we had to read parts of the Bible for the second semester of this class. And I remember my TA just being so excited. He was like, I'm not a Christian, but if I were a Christian, I would be so jazzed that this was my holy book. And I like, did not really understand what he meant. But the older I get, the more I kind of get it. Like, there's so much in there in terms of genre, in terms of like, the, some of the stories are insane.、Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, there's truths to be gleaned from it.、Um, but it's just, it's not the book of answers that I thought it was before. So that's the blessing side. On the burden side, I think what was really hard for me at the beginning was that, like, You know, I came in with a very different worldview, and all of a sudden I felt like this book told me some things that I thought were out of line with that previous worldview. And I thought I had to throw away some things.、Um, like, you know, my ideas about the equality of men and women. I, you know, I grew up in the Midwest in the late 90s at a time where, like, most of the culture, even though this was not true in the church that I was in, the culture was like, the Bible actually says that that's not true. And so,、um, Having to squeeze all of my beliefs like back into this mold, I think was really challenging. And it wasn't until maybe like the end of college that I came to realize that、um, I don't necessarily have to do that. Like I can 
the the Bible is a book to be read critically as anything else, as any other book. Um, and I think now the ways that I perceive it as a burden, I just, I perceive it as a burden when it is just like applied like it is a textbook to be taken literally where at like with no understanding of the cultural context that it was the contexts it was written in or the genres that are in it. Um, I just don't like it when it's used, when it's wielded as a weapon. And I, and it so often is when it is, when people uh, interpret it literally and without like any thought or nuance or care for like who it was written for, why it was written, all of which I think are critical in terms of understanding it. So long answer to your question, but uh, those are the ways, broadly speaking, that I've experienced it as a blessing mm. and a burden. Wow, Liz, thank you so much. I mean, you you offered a very robust theology of the Bible that I think would um, would land well in lots of different uh, Christian contexts. And so, you know, what you said about the Bible would be would find agreement um, with lots of people who consider themselves Christian theologians. And it's a very particular way of thinking about the Bible that says it's supposed to be a book of answers um, mm-hmm. that has been um, claimed, believed, espoused, and then become problematic in American culture, right? And mm-hmm. so um, I really appreciate that. And I think what you're saying about the ways that the Bible has been weaponized is so it's not just a theoretical problem, right? Like we've experienced it mm-hmm. in very concrete and visceral ways, and and mm-hmm. you have as um as a woman, kind of thinking mm-hmm. about what you know what has been told me about the teachings of the Bible with regard to gender and how how has that been oppressive? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a really you know that's a really profoundly painful thing to think about uh, as you think about as we consider the ramifications of this, the consequences of this, right? The real world implications of this, is, which is so devastating for so many people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm curious to ask you the same question as somebody, you know, like connecting this to our previous conversation, as somebody who has never known life without it, like how have you experienced the Bible to be a blessing and a burden? Or was there anything that made you answer, or at the, anything that made you ask this question that you would like to share? Yeah. I mean, I think what what you referenced earlier about the Bible is this amazing book with with crazy stories. Mm-hmm. And uh and there I think there is at the heart of a book like this an invitation to consider, to to really confront the messiness of life and mm-hmm. all of its problematic details. And so mm-hmm. it's sort of like when you when you are seen by a friend in all of your uh, messy complexity and dysfunctional beauty, and mm-hmm. they still love and accept you. It seems like the Bible is a book that says, "Hey, we know, right? The authors of this book are more or less saying we understand how messy and how how um, demoralizing and how disgusting sometimes even life can become." Mm-hmm. Um, and in the midst of all of this, there's a God who is working out, weaving a story of redemption and beauty out of this without undermining or without minimizing the pain and um, and the messiness of, of, of it all. So I think in that sense, I um, have found the complexity of the Bible, the multivocality of the, of the Bible, the fact that it speaks in so many different voices. Mm-hmm. Um, 
to be a real source of uh, blessing, encouragement, even inspiration. Mm. Um, where it's been a burden is when scripture oftentimes in my life has been um, uh, distilled into moralistic teachings with sure. chapter and verse attached yes. to these moralistic interpretations. And it seems yes. like, and I it, both, uh, these are inter interpretations that I may have held at one point or another, uh -huh. or that have been um, kind of thrust upon me. Doesn't the Bible clearly say mm. you know, this or that? And how can you, you know, how can you live in such a way or how can you think in such a way that contradicts the Bible? And mm -hmm. there's a common sense appeal to that kind of reasoning and at the same time, a really problematic um, aspect to it. And so I would, that's been a burden, the, the, the weaponization of scripture. And, um, and we can get into maybe some of the more nuanced details of this as we talk about Martin Noel's book. But the versification, he talks about the ways in which the versification of the Bible, mm -hmm. by which he yeah. means the addition of uh, chapter and verse to the Bible mm, because it, mm -hmm. um, because the original text of scripture didn't have what it wasn't broken down into chapter and verse right like those right. are later additions yes and uh, and there's something about that that made the weaponization of scripture easier because you could yes. offer a very clear reference you could say yes. Leviticus right in chapter and verse and say and that was meant to convey, a certain message or a teaching that was undeniable, that was indisputably true and clear. Yes, a verse completely devoid of context. Yes. To prove whatever point you're trying to argue. Exactly, right. And a verse that, as you said, could be could be contradicted in a later or earlier verse. Yes, yes. I I appreciate so many so much of what you just said. I think. In terms of like what you said about the multivocality of the Bible, I think that is so – I really appreciate that as an adult in a way that I did not as a child because I feel like as an adult, at least in the particular context that I was in, it was all like how can we bring all these voices into harmony? How can we make everything say the same thing? Um, and it's so much – you have to do so many theological gymnastics in order to get all of the Bible to say one thing, Right. But as I get older and life gets more complicated and I become more um, able to appreciate and accept how complicated life is, that multivocality is becomes a gift instead of a burden. Um, and I, I really appreciate what you just said, too, about like the kind of reduction of the Bible to these moralistic teachings with chapter and verse, because that's how children's ministry works for so many kids in America, right? It's all about... Don't do this. Don't do this. Here's the verse. Here's the verse. Let's memorize the verse to justify why we don't do this. And, you know, no wonder then as adults, this is what people do, right? Like they don't have any understanding of, you know, the letters of Paul as actual letters that were written from actual people to actual communities and not just 26 chapters of something. And, um, how then it's that much harder to understand the Bible as an, an, a complete work in itself that has an arc, a whole narrative trajectory, um, when you can just reduce anything to like chapter and verse. So all that to say, I really, um, I think you nailed it with those particular words. Thank you. Well, another way I think of sort of stepping into the complexity of the Bible, I think, is um, by thinking about 
what Mark Noel says is the difference between um, Biblicism and Sola Scriptura. So I wanted to mm -hmm. sort of run through those uh, definitions um, with you and then mm -hmm. just invite your reflection on the implications um, of these various ways of reading the Bible. So he says Biblicism is, and he's not the only one to say this, obviously, but he's uh, highlighting a definition of Biblicism where the Bible is the only authority for accessing truth about the world. Mm -hmm. And so that's going to um, have a very different kind of um, manifestation in the world, um, different from Sola Scriptura. So Sola Scriptura, again, this is one that is going to have, depending on who you talk to and which book you read, uh, you're going to encounter different definitions. Um, but the one that he offers, I think, is a very commonly acknowledged one. Um, and, and he says, Sola Scriptura more or less teaches that the Bible is the final authority when it comes to matters of truth, but it's not the only authority. And if you think about it, there's a profound difference between saying the Bible is the only authority mm -hmm. and saying the Bible is the final authority. And in that theological system, one can take into account many other voices that are also authoritative or that hold mm -hmm. authority. It won't hold final authority, but the Bible is going to uh, be in conversation with those other authorities. And so I wonder, I guess the question for you is how, how do you think it changes or it could, that it, how might it change Christian faith and spirituality if we realized that Biblicism wasn't the only way to read the Bible? I mean, I think so many people think that Biblicism is the only biblical way of understanding the Bible. And there's something, yeah. um, there's something just kind of uh, circular um, the, the circular reasoning in that is hugely uh, problematic. And so, how, yeah, what do you think um, opens up for us or happens when we have these different understandings of, um, we have these different definitions of um, what it means to read the Bible? I mean, I, I appreciate the definitions for so many reasons, one of which is that they offer alternate understandings that I think some people don't have even have the imagination for because we've only been presented with one of these as an option. Um, I also appreciate having them because as I was reading the Mark Null chapter, I was not totally clear on what, like, I, it, it was clear to me that Biblicism was a more extreme version of Sola Scriptura, but I, I didn't know exactly how he was defining them. Um, when I, in my seminary days, like, uh, in the particular classes that I was in, like, Sola Scriptura was defined as um, the Bible is the only authority. And that was, that was presented in contrast with something like the Wesleyan quadrilateral, which holds that the Bible is one of multiple sources of truth. So, you know, scripture exists alongside tradition, reason, and experience. Um, and, you know, it is putting those four things in conversation that we can come to any kind of understanding of truth. And it seems the way that Noel defines it, sola scriptura, it it maybe the model looks like the Wesleyan quadrilateral, but like the sola scriptura one is like, I don't know, the tallest pillar, the one that like wins in the end ultimately. Um, but I, I do appreciate this like invitation to acknowledge that there are other sources of truth. Um, I think, God, this has come up before um, in this, on this podcast, but like in, in my evangelical experience, like so 
I was taught to be very distrustful of my own experience. I was taught to like basically throw everything away that didn't align with what the Bible said. And um, that's a really unhelpful way to live. I think for so many reasons, one of which is that the Bible is always taught to us in a specific cultural context, right? It's not free of context in of itself, but also because like your experience of the world is like an important source of information, right? And like, you know, so when my, ex when my experience of, um, you know, men and women being equally capable to lead or do anything did not resonate with what I was told the Bible uh, said about it, I was told to throw away this experience and like, I'm just one person, but if I was a person with real power, that would have that could have been hugely impactful for a lot of people. And it was impactful for me, or at least confusing for me when I was trying to reconcile those things, you know? Um, and I think a lot of people are very profoundly impacted by internalizing that idea. So um yeah, and I you know if and if we believe that God manifests God's self not just through the Bible, but in lots of different ways, like in nature and in science and in so many different things. Like it just, I, I just like that it it allows us to like experience God in the totality, in, in a, in a much wider range, I think, um, than, uh, only through the Bible. Like I, I, I feel like most of us have had spiritual experiences, not just in the pages of the Bible. Like we've had them when we're taking walks, we've had them in conversations with people, um, and like recognizing that there's other, like those, those are also valid sources of truth in places where we can like experience God and the divine in different ways, I think just like allows us to have a more, a fuller mm. spirituality. Yeah. I love that. And it seems like it's just a way of coming clean about the fact that we all read any text through the mm -hmm. lens of our own experience yes, and uh, through the lens of our cultural um, surroundings, our, our, uh, our cultural environments. Um, and so it's just being really honest about that yeah. and saying there's going to be different uh, kinds of interpretations based on um, the, whatever lens we're bringing in that particular moment. And this is why when you read the Bible at a, at a certain stage of your life, and then again at a later stage of your life, it's not that the book or the text has changed, uh, but one's encounter and understanding um, with that text can change, and, and there can be a fuller understanding. Mm -hmm. um, and it doesn't have to be threatening or dangerous to think of the text living in that way. Right, as evolving and as, um, as as speaking in different ways, especially when you take different parts of it together, which are very disparate elements on their own, but together mm -hmm. help to concoct a much more complicated and beautiful picture. And so, I I just love the ways in which you're helping us to appreciate the complex um, layers involved in reading scripture. Yeah, and I like the way you said coming clean. Like, let's let's be honest about the fact that like we always bring the lens of our experience and. There are parts of the Bible that we don't adhere, that we don't do, like the, you know, greeting each other with a holy kiss. Like that's always, no one ever talks about that. Take it, like, why don't we take that literally? But the reason is like, we we are always like applying these different lenses and these different sources of truth. And like we, this acknowledgement lets us be honest about that. So yeah, I appreciate that language. Well, thanks, Liz, for um, this really wonderful uh, probing conversation about the role of the Bible. And I think um, what you've, what this conversation has helped us to realize, or maybe to um, 
to reiterate is that the Bible invites us to a much more complicated wrestling with truth yes. and with what it means to journey with God. And I love how, um, yeah, how we're stumbling into that reality and the messiness mm -hmm. of that and, and also the beauty of that together.